Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 132. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Here celebrating the 60th anniversary of The Absent-Minded Professor, released on this day in 1961. So we are right on the anniversary. Usually when we do an anniversary, it's like within the week of, very rarely is it on the day. So when we saw this come up on the calendar, we kind of knew that we had to discuss this one. Now, let me ask you, prior to watching it for the show, had you seen this movie before? No, I knew the title, didn't really know too much about it, and I had no idea that Flubber was a remake. Neither did I. So this was the first time I had seen it, too. Heard about it, again, one of those movies that you just come across when you're surfing on Disney+. Plus. You know it's a Walt-era film. So... You know, you just see the Model T flying through the sky on the screen grab. And I think that sort of captured my attention. So I was really excited when we were able to actually sit down and delve into this one. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram and the Etsy shop. Search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., And you will find all of your straw charm needs. We are introduced to Professor Brainard, an absent-minded professor who is set to be married at 8.30 that evening. This being their third attempt at getting married because he has missed the previous two tries. While conducting an experiment three months in the making, an explosion knocks him out, causing him to miss his wedding, much to the dismay of his fiancée Betsy and the thrill of her former boyfriend Shelby. Brainard awakens to find that he has created a goo-like material that creates its own energy and bounces like flying rubber, so he names it Flubber. He realizes that by controlling its gamma rays that he can control and harness Flubber's energy and that it can lift just about any weight. When he realizes he missed the wedding the following morning, he heads to Medfield University to speak to Betsy, who is not interested in speaking to him. At the same time, wealthy donor Alonzo Hawk storms in to dispute a failing grade that Brainard Uh, bestowed on his son Biff, the school's star basketball player, who is now ineligible to play in the big game against Rutland, the school's biggest rival. Brainard explains that they don't need Hawk's money because Flubber could be worth millions, but no one will listen to him. Over the course of the day, Brainard uses his Flubber to help make his car fly, as well as aid Medfield in winning their basketball game. Meanwhile, Shelby continues to try and woo Betsy and asks her to marry him instead, but she needs time to think about it. Brainard retaliates against Shelby and bounces his car on top of Shelby's, leading to Shelby crashing into a police car and failing a field sobriety test due to his hysterical nature. Hawk and his son also see Brainard's flying car and offer him a business deal to sell his technology and help save the college, but Brainard declines and decides to try and sell Flubber on his own to the government. Hawk and Biff, meanwhile, plan on switching cars with Brainard and stealing the Flubber. 
The Department of Defense has interest in Flubber and secretly plans on heading to Medfield to see it for themselves. While at the homecoming dance, Hawk swaps cars and the Department of Defense arrives. When the car won't fly, Professor Brainard is laughed off as a fraud, but Betsy takes pity on him. He shows Betsy how Flubber works and realizes that Hawk has switched the car. The next day, Betsy and Brainard trick Hawk into wearing flubberized shoes, and when he can't control the bouncing, he tells them that his car is located in a warehouse and they set off to retrieve it. Meanwhile, the fire department and everyone in town is trying to help Hawk. Brainard and Betsy break the car out of the warehouse, but are chased by Hawk and his men. Brainard bounces his car on top of theirs and causes another accident with the police, leading to the arrest of Hawk and his men. They then fly the car to Washington. After nearly being shot down by the Air Force, they land on the White House lawn and announce that all of the armed forces will share the flubber technology, and Brainard and Betsy are married and fly away in his Model T. All right, so this movie is based off of a conference that Walt Disney had attended at the Brussels World's Fair in the 1950s. He saw a professor I, that they used to call Dr. Boom, a Russian professor, and he was very manic. That's a real name? That's what his nickname was, Dr. Boom. And this gave Walt Disney the inspiration to write this film. So, 1961, you have seen a lot of projects come out of the Walt Disney Company that, by and large, were based on books. You know, they they didn't have a lot of really original material. Most of what they did were based on fairy tales or based on like a Swiss Family Robinson or later a Mary Poppins Treasure or Island. Treasure Island, you know, based on classic literature. So this is very unique in that aspect. What I love about it, too, is that obviously this film predates Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but I could see Disney and his love of technology and keep moving forward wanting to do something and be like, let's figure out the flying car. Let's make the movie about the flying car. But I love that the story was inspired by something bigger and that it's rooted in more science than technology. And this totally, the way that this film starts, it takes me right back to the classic journey into the imagination when you get off the ride and there's all these things that you can see and touch and hear. I feel like it drew so much inspiration from this first scene where we meet Professor Brainard and he's teaching his class about acoustical energy. I think that was a really fun way to start. The movie from the start has a very Walt Disney feel to it. And I mean, I don't mean the company. I mean, I mean Walt Disney, the man. This feels like his sort of humor. It feels like his sort of story. Of course, we know it is, but you can tell from the rip just how much fun they were going to have and how they were going to push the envelope when it came to practical effects and how they would use it when movies such as Mary Poppins did come later. I I think he experimented a lot with films like this and he could later push the envelope when he 
would make something three, four years down the line once they really harnessed what it is that they could do with those special effects. It also sets up the edutainment value. Yes. Because we do know the story of the broken wine glass when the pitch got too high. So I like that the professor's explaining it and we get to see it play out. And it does sort of start developing the character a little bit because he doesn't really care that he just shattered his students' eyeglasses. And I think that that goes directly into what you said with Disney's humor. Right. Um, but even though it is a lesson that most people are familiar with, they still put their own twist on it. Mm-hmm. I love the constant reminder notes for the wedding. I think that his housekeeper constantly leaving him these notes and him sort of blowing it off, I think that helps develop him because other than watching him blow his classroom apart, we don't know much about him. So I love that they really do plant that he truly is absent-minded. As brilliant as he is, he is truly absent-minded to the point where we are now on his third attempt at getting married to the same woman because he can't remember his wedding date. I think that was kind of an interesting choice because when you think absent-minded professor, I was really expecting more of a befuddled person who couldn't help but trip over themselves and is constantly getting in their own way. Sort of like what they did. I think Robin Williams in Flubber is more along those lines. This, like you said, he is just truly forgetful. And obviously they're starting to establish that he's work obsessed because it's it's not just that he's forgetting the wedding. It's because he keeps getting tied up and missing it. But to circle back to what you said, I absolutely love Mrs. Chatsworth and all of her post-it notes that she's leaving everywhere. Um, and the Reverend as well, as they're setting up on Betsy's end of it. He kind of can't believe what he's seeing, that he's getting ready to do this for a third time. And just the, I, I feel like he's one of my favorite, he has become one of my favorite Disney characters of all time, even though he has very little screen time. And He's, I think, unfortunately, sort of faded into the background of Disney history. But just this WTF stare that he's got on his face the entire time, I think it's hysterical. It is. The backhanded compliments, the out-and-out insults that he throws at them. I think he's great. I love the humor that he brings. And he's only in two scenes, Yet he is a scene stealer in every scene that Both he is times. in. Absolutely. I don't understand why Shelby and Betsy are still a thing, though. This is a little weird. And I don't think that this has to do with the fact that the movie is 60 years old. I don't quite understand how Betsy is engaged to Brainard. And we know that it's a rocky relationship. But why she would still remain so close to an ex-boyfriend that is done nothing but tell her, you're making a mistake, you should be with me, you're making a mistake. Not not in a rom-com like she's running back up the aisle and ditching her, her boyfriend that none of us like to run off with Matthew McConaughey or whoever it is at the end of the movie. Um, th- it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's a little uncomfortable. I know that there's no like villain in this movie, so you kind of have an antagonist in Shelby... And you have an antagonist in Hawk. But this is just a little strange. He's incredibly annoying, first of all. 
you are right. The fact that she would still be friends with her ex is a little bit odd, especially when they all work at the college except for him. He works at Rutland. So you can't even make the case for she keeps running into him on campus and she can't shake him off. You yeah. have to actively seek him out and spend time with him. So that's kind of a little shady on her part. I do want to address that, although I, I guess this is why. I question her judgment because she's now trying to marry this guy for the third time. And that is what I want to address right now. I feel like this is, it's very humorous. So I get why they did it. But this is also very extreme. It's extreme, but this is a comedy. It is, but it's like, I could see if the professor kept missing dates and she wanted to marry him. And he was trying to propose, but then it kept getting derailed. And then she decided, no, I, I can't do this. But the third wet, how do you miss the third wedding? And then she's like, oh, don't worry. I told his housekeeper she'll get him there. I get what you're saying. But I think they are just trying to be overtly silly here. And it's high stakes. I get it. But. It makes me question Betsy's judgment from the beginning, and I'm not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to like her and root for her. See, and this was where, to me, it makes more sense if if Shelby... Here's the other thing. You can't have, you can't have a villain named Shelly. I'm just going to throw that one out there. So I don't, <laughs> I don't buy it because he's, like, way too soft. And he's, he's a romance, a, a literature romance professor or some such nonsense... He's a lit professor, but he like has every Shakespeare quote just It's in his Rolodex in his mind constantly, like ready to go. That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's right on his sleeve. Every time he just pulls it out at the most inopportune moment. But I can kind of live with that because he is supposed to be he's supposed to be a goof. He's supposed to be a guy that Brainard is gonna bounce a model T on top of and fail a field sobriety test, and it's it's to our it's to our entertainment. It does work. Oh, yeah. No, they did a great job. That's not a knock at the filmmaking or the performance. They did a great job of just making him derpy. Now He I, successfully annoyed me. I yeah. mean, there's no greater testament to your acting than that. But I think it if, it, if it were something that he were hiding, if she didn't know that he had a thing for her, let's say they were just, he was, he's in the friend zone and he is, he is set on how can I sabotage this for her so that she comes to me instead of goes back to him. And when he sees that he missed the wedding for the third time, that's an opportunity for him to pounce. I felt like that would have made for a better, I'm not going to say a better story. It would have made for a less uncomfortable situation than your clingy ex that just keeps bashing your fiance. I think it would make you want to root for him a little bit more. But in this case, it's very difficult to do that because he's a vulture. Every time the professor messes up, he's right there to step in. But Betsy kind of gives him the inch and he takes a mile because what happens when when the professor never shows up? She's like, well, I'm without an escort. Take me home. Yeah. And again, it makes her a little bit less likable. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you somebody who I do like from the from the jump is Alonzo Hawk. So when 
Brainard goes to apologize to Betsy and explain Flubber, Brainard comes storming in. Well, wait, why don't we talk about Flubber first? Or Hawk, why don't, Hawk comes storming in, I should say. Why don't we talk about the whole reason that he did miss the wedding? Yeah, we because all right, this yeah. is all within like the first five minutes or so. It moves quick. Absolutely, it, they do. They do pretty much get you in, get Flubber discovered relatively fast. I love that they don't waste any time. Right. Yeah. So he he does this experiment, and he creates this Flubber, this goo-like substance, and I love how he's able to just like mold it into a ball. But the the special effects as they show it bouncing and goes higher and higher and it's ricocheting off of things and they match up the sound effects. I mean, for 1961, it's really, really well done. Right, and there's multiple pieces of flubber bouncing around the room. It's a great scene and I, I love the performance in the discovery. There's just a little bit of disconnect for me. I wish that he hadn't rolled it up into a ball because... To me, it sort of takes away from what an amazing discovery this is because it just looks like a bouncing ball. They do take very good care of explaining that it is, it's not just a substance, it's a form of energy. And I, I get without CGI, this is how they got around it, right? Is because you can't create this like sort of misty looking like a plasma type of goo you had to give it like that actual hard substance that he could interact with so I get why they chose to do it but I feel like it almost does flubber a disservice because it makes it look like a bouncing rubber ball when instead it is an energy it's going to be used to power things he does explain that it's kinetic energy and the more the ball bounces instead of just giving way to gravity and ending up on the floor, the more that it bounces, the more energy it's gathering. So they, they do simplify it. They do make it very easy to understand. But I feel like if you're not paying attention to, to the dialogue and more to my point, if kids are watching, I feel like they sort of miss the mark when making this easily digestible for kids that he didn't just invent rubber essentially that that can power a car see and i disagree because i like the fact that they made it something physical and something tangible in in spite of the fact that it looks like a handball that doesn't bother me because i would rather have them do that than do what they did in flubber which was try to make it a a silly substance that has its own personality and causes mischief. And the only way to have done that in the 60s was to do hand-drawn animation and superimpose it in, which Disney had done up to that point. I just don't think that I could have taken the creation of it very seriously. And I don't think you could look at that as something that could change the world so much as it is that it's just something that's silly. So I kind of like the fact that they didn't do that and they just made it a physical form of energy. See, that's interesting because it never even occurred to me to do the, the hand-drawn overlay. Um, you are right, though. I'm glad they didn't necessarily go the route like they did in Flover because that comes off like he made a new life form because... 
it does sort of have the arms and legs and the big belly and they're dancing almost like that scene in the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, yeah, I wonder if that ever was an idea was to do the hand-drawn animation because to me, that's also something where you lose a little bit in the scene of the way that it's shot because it's a lot of wides. They don't go for a lot of close-ups and the, the scenes throughout this film are longer. So they don't take the time to punch in. And I guess that's where there's a little bit of a disconnect is that you're not, you're not quite seeing this play out. You're, you have to rely more on the professor's explanation, but um, they were using, this was the early version of that Mary Poppins technology. And instead of the hand-drawn overlay, they did use the sodium vapors, which was really the first kind of a green screen. And I love the set. I love the lab in the garage. I do too. And I even love it after they destroy it. I thought it was, I buy that Brainard spends his evenings in this detached garage blowing things up. Yeah, it gives it more of like a lab feel as opposed to mad scientist in the basement. Mm -hmm. Which I think you kind of used to at that point. Even in the 60s, I think you've seen it a hundred times. Or like a Frankenstein's monster where they're up on a hill somewhere. This made it, more like it was more recognizable like you know the guy next door next door could be doing anything in his garage right now maybe he made flubber and it does lend well to the scene the next morning when mrs chatsworth she says that she's going to come back uh to take care of the dog and you get that oh crap moment right along with her when she realizes that he never left yeah now we get to the scene that i was talking about he goes to apologize and in comes alonzo hawk He's so slimy. He's so good. You got Biff is in there trying to like talk him off a ledge and he says, Don't make this don't make this more of a thing than it needs to be. I failed my test. And I like the fact that Brainard here stands up for himself and isn't just pushed around and goes so far as to break it down and say, I gave him the opportunity for a retest. He didn't want to take it, and he couldn't even spell the name of the university on his answer sheet. So I like that. Brainard, as much as he loves the college, and there's a fact that there's a, there's a a risk now that Medfield may close down. He is stuck. He's not willing to back down from his ethics, and I think that this is an important moment too for him in terms of character development, because I think that sets up what happens later with Shelby. It is a very important moment for character development which is completely lost on me because I am so distracted that seconds prior he never really offers Betsy an apology he offers her an explanation and those are two totally different things and he kind of comes in first of all absolutely has no regard that he's interrupting her workday and she's trying to transcribe something that her boss is saying and and she's going to have to type it up and she missed half of it because he's like don't worry I have flubber and um I feel like he ends up coming off very misogynistic besides the blatant disregard for her work this is now the third time that you missed the wedding you messed up real bad yes you bought flowers but you're just trying to tell her why. And and he's so focused on, well, once she sees what a cool thing I invented, she's not going to care. You need to do a little bit more than that to make up for what you've done. 
I don't disagree. And it sort of lends the question, why didn't anybody go get him or try to find him when he was missing the wedding? Because this whole thing could have been avoided, but of course then you don't have a film. If someone would have gone to the house and found him unconscious on the floor. I was kind of thinking the same thing, yeah. Now he tries to explain this to her that I was knocked out. She doesn't want to hear it. I can't blame her. This is now the third time. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that he's any less likable than he was at the beginning of the film. Well, this is sort of where you flip back on the side of Betsy because it's like, I told your housekeeper that you need to get here. Why didn't she physically put you in the car? I also think it makes him less likable, though, not just because of the lack of apology, but because he cares more about Biff and his performance. And he knows exactly what happened with Biff. And and he's got the attention to detail with Biff's test and he's sticking to his guns and his code of ethics. But it's like you couldn't you couldn't get there on time. You couldn't get to your wedding. You knew what time it was. I know you got wrapped up in your work, but there's no excuse that he would have that much attention on one of his students and not on his fiance. That's where it almost, and and I know we're trying to play up the humor, but up till this point, it's pretty believable. That takes me out of it a little bit. But he didn't lose track of time. He got knocked unconscious. He was playing it very, very close. Well, that's the thing. I don't think they ever really tell us how much time had passed or or what time it was that he was in the lab at the point that the experiment exploded in relation to how close it was to the start of the wedding. See, I got the impression we were within the hour. I'm not sure. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, Hawk. I like him. I like him as an antagonist right away. And I think that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this is the guy that's going to steal the technology. Because Shelby, Shelby's an antagonist, but he's not smart enough to steal Flubber. This guy, you can tell, is his wheels are constantly moving. And he, he's only been on screen for two or three minutes. Right, and in Shelby's case, he's so focused on Betsy, he's not even going to realize that he can kind of hit the professor right in the Achilles heel if he takes this. Um, yeah, Hawk is pretty amazing, not just in the sense of being an antagonist. He's a jerk, but within the first couple of minutes of meeting him, he compares the death of small business, which in this case is the college because they're trying to buy it out. Yeah, because they're a tiny school. Right. To putting a horse out of its misery. Sound familiar? Mm hmm. And he said the day of the local store is gone. We're entering the age of the supermarket. Ouch. I mean, even 60 years ago, this movie, I think, was very much ahead of its time in recognizing what was coming down the pike. Definitely. I love Charlie, the dog. I think he's a fun companion. I love that he is always with Brainard. And I love when Brainard turns his his Model T into a flying car and Charlie is there along for the ride and he's got a harness on and he's strapped in because initially you think, what's going to happen to the dog? You're flying. But he takes such delicate care to make sure that he's not going anywhere. 
I think this scene is so much fun when he gets this car to fly. And I think that it looks really, really good for 1961. I can't confirm this, but to me, Charlie looks just like Andrew from Mary Poppins. I would go out on a limb to say it is the same dog. I'm, I just can't find that, though. There's not a lot of production notes here. It's possible. I mean, Disney was well known for dipping into the same pool of talent. Who's to say that he doesn't do the same thing with an animal actor? They did it for um, the dogs in Treasure Island. I think one of them appears in The Ugly Dachshund. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, this was only three years apart from Mary Poppins, so it could be. But to me, it looks like, I think it's the same dog. But I think these special effects, they hold up. This flying car looks great. And I, I think I think it was a practical effect. I think they had it on a crane. It looks awesome. Yeah, and what impresses me too is the way that they line up the shots when they're looking down at the town below them through the window. They really did a great job of lining everything up. Um and, and they make the car flip. They do a full-on loop. It, it's pretty amazing. Now we get to Betsy's house because Brainard has flown the car there to surprise her. It's the night of the Rutland game. He's going to pick her up. And how crass, when he knocks on the door of her home, Shelby answers it. And he's so smarmy about it, too. He's such a jerk. Well, they both are. Because the professor wants her to go for a ride in the Model T so he can show her it flies. Okay, fine. They are literally yanking this woman by the arm. Both of them. Oh, I have that note. Not okay. They literally, the definition of manhandler. Yeah, no, it's not okay. That's, that's, That's really the only thing that makes this film feel dated as hell. It bothers me more that Shelby is doing it than Brainard. Because Brainard is just at times out of touch with reality and hysterical. So I kind of see where he would just grab her arm and pull on it and go to yank her away without even thinking that there's anything wrong with it. But you have Mr. Romance, Shelby, with the Shakespeare on the tip of his tongue, looking to woo her at every opportunity, literally yanking on her. It bothers me more when it's coming from him. Because... Shelby treats her like a possession. It's not just about winning against Baynard. It's the the way that he like covets her almost. It's creepy. Well, that's the thing. Like like Brainard loves her and mistreats her in regards to missing the wedding and putting her on the back burner. But I don't think he looks at her as arm candy, the way that Shelby does. Right. Now we get to this basketball game. None of these basketball players are under the age of 40. (laughs) Yeah, that is is grease bad. I don't understand how any of them passed for being college students. I don't understand, and I guess it's for the comedy and you're going to set up the special effects, but it's like in Space Jam. When the Toon <laughs> Squad plays against the Monstars, where they are just so much smaller. I mean, yes, it's there for comedic purpose. It's there to show that they are clearly the underdog team. But I don't buy for a second that Biff could have helped them at all. 
I don't see Tommy Kirk as being the one that's going to carry this team over this other team of monsters. No, I agree. It is funny. The The visual gag totally worked, but they not only cast taller basketball players for Rutland, they deliberately juxtapose that by casting smaller people for midfield. Now, I love the betting angle here. I love the fact that Hawk is betting against his alma mater, against the team that his son plays for, although he's not playing in this particular game. I think it adds a layer because when Medfield comes back to win, it's not only a victory for the school against Rutland, but it's also a victory against Hawk, and it's a victory against Shelby because Shelby is from Rutland, and he doesn't fail at any opportunity to remind you how much better they are. It is such a great scene that your two antagonists get foiled in one fell swoop. But not just that. that It's great for the story point, but the way that they shot this is pretty amazing. And the concept of... It, you know, Baynard is sort of motivated by revenge. He he wants Medfield to win. Part of that is to win Betsy back because he thinks that's going to get Betsy back. But he also wants to see Shelby fall on his face. So he puts the flubber on their sneakers and they bounce and they end up winning the game. But the way that this is shot, I'm not doing it a justice right now. Uh, it's It's just so incredible. It's hysterical. The flying effects look great. But the scene drags on a little bit. It's it's okay yeah. because it is very funny, but the scene does sort of drag. And not just for the sake of creating suspense with the basketball game and letting us see it. See, that's the thing. If they had shot this more like a basketball game and, and done the close-ups and actually like gotten us onto the court, I think with the right pacing, it would have been a lot more interesting and it didn't feel like it was dragging it much, that much. They're so focused on let's show these amazing shots of these guys flying through the air and what we can achieve and how cool we can make it look that they're showing everything that they have. And it would have a little more editing would have gone a long way in this case. The field sobriety test as they leave uh, the Rutland game. When Brainard loses his cool, it's absolutely brilliant. I love the manic look, the white of his eyes as he's bouncing that Model T on top of Shelby and he's just honking that horn laughing. I love Shelby's hysterical nature and that's what uh, leads to the failed field sobriety test. I love that that's how he gets foiled and it adds insult to injury because the guy's probably never had a drink a day in his life and he's just he's offended. He doesn't even care that he just had an accident. He doesn't even care that he's being chased by a being that he can't see. He's pissed because he has to blow. Mm -hmm. I also love how Hawk realizes that there's an opportunity here for him. So he and his son pursue Brainard and, and try to really sweet-talk him into sell us the technology because we can save the university. And they're trying to hit him where he's soft, and it doesn't work at all because at the end of the day, Brainard may be absent-minded, and I'll say it again, he is a brilliant mind. So he's not somebody that you can easily pull the wool over in terms of pulling the wool over his eyes. 
But I love that this is where Hawk pivots to next. I also love where Brainard decides that he's going to try and pursue this himself. So he is calling the different branches of government. I love it. And they're all just passing him off agriculture, defense, this one, that one, transportation, because initially nobody wants to listen to his pitch. Well, this this sort of loses me a little bit, too, because they are passing him off to the next guy. But then all of a sudden, everybody's interested and they're all double crossing each other to go and meet with him. See, it's only the Department of Defense, though, and this is what I love. Agriculture, transportation, they all kind of write him off as a loon. It's not until the Department of Defense goes, you know, we've been trying to crack anti-gravity. We haven't been able to do it. But they all play it off like, I'm not interested. Nah, I'm not really going to play along. And then it's like it's like Mad Mad World or Rat Race, where all of a sudden you see them all flooding in the airport at the same time. And they jump into the waiting taxi cab to find out that the other member of the Department of Defense is already in the taxi cab. This entire gag to me is hysterical. I love this. It is. It's a great punchline, especially because I sort of get, I get antsy in this scene before because the issue, it, it's the same way that Ned is trying to apologize or not trying to apologize. He's just got an explanation and he's pushing his agenda. He's getting so upset that no one is listening about his discovery, what he doesn't realize is that he is a very bad communicator. He can explain, he can stand in front of a, a room full of college kids and explain this, you know, theory of sound and how it can break a glass. And he has no problem doing that. But he is so tied up in, well, this is going to help everybody. And, and they're trying to ask him what department he wants to get in touch with. And he's like, oh, everyone it'll help everything and it's like that's not how you get your foot in the door right but it could help everyone it could help everything but he doesn't sound he doesn't realize how manic he sounds on the phone with the government right because he's just focused on i made a genius discovery just listen to me mm -hmm. let's talk about the homecoming dance because now here we are he's got his model t parked out front Hawk has switched the cars around. The Department of Defense is on their way, and he wants to woo Betsy, so he flubberizes his shoes, just like he did for the basketball game, and he goes to dance with her, and he is literally flying around the room. The physical comedy is hysterical, but I love the practical effects in this scene. I think, as silly as it is, it looks really, really good. I love the setup for this scene, too. He's almost not going to go, and he's just about to accept that Betsy doesn't want him back. And because he doesn't think that anybody wants to meet with him, uh, he's pretty down on his luck, and it's Mrs. Chatsworth who gets him there, and she goes, even a chimpanzee is going to go fight for, his, for its mate. And then he says that to Betsy as yes. his reasoning for showing up and bouncing around the gym. Very funny. Very well done. But there's a part of me that like sort of rolls my eyes along with her when you see him poking his head up from behind the crowd because he's got the flubber on his shoes. When the Department of Defense shows up and he can't make the car fly and he opens up the hood and they replaced it with a squirrel on a wheel. What a cruel joke to the point where 
even Tommy Kirk's character Biff goes, yeah, this might this might have been a little too much. It's it's cruel. It's very funny though. It's a yeah, great it gag. It's very good. Now it's at that moment that Betsy and Brainard realize that Hawk has switched the car because he said my car had a radio in it. This one doesn't. So when they go, they devise this plan to trick Hawk and to sweet talk him a little bit. And there's a very important line when they go to Hawk's house and show him the flubberized shoes. And they say only 8% of the world's population owns a car but every person owns a pair of shoes so good it's a great sales pitch and you think back on it now and you say wow eight percent it's it's a lot more than that now where whereas families back in 1961 maybe had one vehicle now if you're a lot of families each parent presumably has a vehicle and if you've got a couple of kids, there's at least one car that they're using, if not one for each, depending on, you know, did they buy it out of somebody's garage or out of somebody's driveway or whatever. But the fact that they say 8% of the population, it's one of the few times, other than the fact that the movie's in black and white, it's one of the few times in the film where, to me, it feels dated. But it doesn't bother me that it feels dated. I don't, I don't think it dates it in a bad way. I'm glad you bring that up because, yeah, I do think that that is something that might get a little lost on the younger generation because now the ratio of people who own cars is a lot closer to the ratio. You you have a car, like like you said, like you do have a pair of shoes. It is closer to that one-to-one ratio. Um, as dated as it may be just because it was a sign of the times and, like you said, not everybody has a car I think the bigger takeaway and the part that holds up is the way that you're appealing to Hawk's senses in this case Mm -hmm. I love that Hawk gets so excited with the bouncing shoes I love that they put it on there intentionally knowing he's not going to know how to stop them and they're basically going to torture him into giving up the location of the vehicle it's a great it's a great means of getting him to fess up but what I love here more than anything else is the bouncing camera and I don't think that's a camera on a crane I have the feeling that they just gave somebody a camera and put them on a trampoline because it looks too smooth to be on a crane it doesn't look clunky or mechanical at all I couldn't figure out why almost at the tail end of the movie, this is the first time that they did that kind of a sight gag because I feel like the cinematography gets better with every scene that Flubber is in. Yeah. First, it's just the the bunch of balls bouncing around in his garage. Then we get to the basketball game, which, you know, we said had dragged a little bit. And if they would have put us into the game a little bit more, it, it would have been a little bit more effective. Then you get the dance sequence where the cinematography is even better and, and you do sort of get swept in with Bess, Betsy and Ned as they're dancing. And here we finally, and I think this is the key, we finally get that POV. I think that it makes you feel like you are really along for the ride with them because the more he realizes how to harness it, the more we realize how to present it. 
and I feel like we're kind of we're along for the journey with him. That's a great point. What I also love about this scene is that the entire town in some way, shape or form tries to help Hawk down. You've got the fire department. Yes. You've got the football team tackling him. Because Biff is calling everybody. I love it. And I do want to. Yeah, that's a, he just keeps screaming at Biff to help. And Biff is trying everything he can think of. I do want to mention the incredible cameo we get in this scene. We've got Edwin playing a firefighter. Hawk is actually in real life his son and his grandson also appears in a lesser role in this movie. So you've got three generations of the Wynn family in one film. That's incredible. Yeah, I love the fire department scene. Ed Wynn does it again as the as the fire chief. He's just so good. I love the hot dog guy. I love that they have a hot dog vendor that shows up and starts selling food as people are spectating Hawk bouncing up and down on his front lawn. That would happen to this day where there's a catastrophe and somebody's looking to make a buck. Yeah. Everything about this scene is good. I love when they do get the car back. Flying to D.C., almost getting shot down by the military. Very funny. But it does drag a little bit. I, I feel like they kind of linger up there for a long time, longer than is necessary. Worse so than the basketball scene. Right. And the fact that they they have them sort of linger up there and then very quickly, it's almost the moment they get down on the ground, it's, we've sold it to the government and now we're married. And then the movie's over. So it's a little bit of an abrupt ending coming out of a scene that drags on. But with that being said, I don't think the end of the movie is bad. I think you sort of get the closure that you want. He's able to sell his technology to whom he wanted to sell it to. It's to be assumed that he has saved the university, and they do get married. So I think this is sort of the closure and the happy ending for all, and of course, Hawk and his men all get arrested anyway. So everybody is sort of made whole at the end of this movie. I agree. I don't know that you need too much more than that, but we don't really see, like we know Shelby has gotten his comeuppance, but you don't really see what happens to him the same way that you do with Hawk. Um, and it maybe would have been nice to see something like Betsy did accept him. I mean, obviously she did. She took him back. They went through with the wedding, but it may have been nice to see her working in the garage with him or something just to build on the idea that she didn't just take him back for all the money that his new invention brought them and that she's actually, you know, that they have a common ground and, and maybe he's going to give up time in the workshop to do more things with her or vice versa. She gets involved in the workshop now. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about these characters a little bit here, starting with Professor Brainard, played by Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray was so good in this role. Now, part of that is because Walt Disney had the real Dr. Boom do a presentation in front of Fred McMurray, and Fred McMurray went and actually kind of mimicked the inflections and the expressions of the real Dr. Boom and used that as motivation for this character, but he's funny, he's endearing, I think he nails the physical comedy, I think he nails the manic nature. Often, I think when you when you compare this film to so many others, 
that the that the Disney company has put out, I think he is an underappreciated and all too forgotten about character and actor. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know I've knocked the character quite a bit and I've called him misogynistic and work obsessed, but it's not a knock at the actor because he achieved both, as you said, a believable delivery of the science, but he also nailed the physical comedy. And the other thing that I think he does really well, this movie does really feel like some classic Hollywood cinema. It reminds me, in the moments with Ned and Betsy, it reminds me a lot of Casablanca, actually. And that's because he's got like that Humphrey Bogart leading man quality about him, too. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Betsy. Played I by, question her judgment. Played by Nancy Olsen. You can question her judgment, but I think Nancy Olsen did a good job with her. She's not an objectionable character by any stretch of the imagination. She's likable enough, if that makes sense. Like, likable enough where I feel bad for her that Ned missed the wedding again. Likable enough that... Um, I'm happy that they do get married. Likeable enough that I feel bad for her when Shelby takes advantage of her and manhandles her. But, I mean, that's it. She's she's likeable enough. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that as far as a leading lady role, there's not a lot of meat and potatoes. And I think that's that's the issue here is because this film is not a romance she's only really playing the part of the girl in the romance movie. They didn't really give her too much more to go off of as far as getting involved with the science of it or with the 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 plans to go to the government with it. And she's not, because they're fighting, she's not supporting Ned. That's the thing. She is like totally separate from the Flubber storyline almost. Um and it's a shame because in a in a film where you see a woman working, they kind of squandered the opportunity to do more with her. And actually, that is the scene that I like her best in because the way that she's, um, you know, sort of going back and forth with her boss and, and he does introduce the plot line that the college is going to be bought out. She's very concerned and she wants to help. Um, you know, and she's trying to, to play play it strong that she just called off the wedding because he missed it again. Um, so I think that's her strongest scene. And I just would have liked to see more things like that from her rather than be a, a yo-yo between Ned and Shelby. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Shelby. Elliot Reed plays Shelby, nails the role, nails the part. As annoying as the character is, that's not to say I dislike him. Like, I would dislike him as a real human being, but as a character in the film, and in terms of the actor who's playing him, really, really good character. I agree. As much as I dislike the character, I every time he came on screen, I couldn't wait to see what he was going to say or do next. Alonzo Hawk, played by Keenan Wynn. We mentioned it before. Three generations of Wynn in this movie. I mentioned earlier as well. Smarmy, slimy, no good, but also good at the same time. I thought he was excellent. He's a very well-developed, well-written character, and I, I think that the acting 
was perfect. I certainly think that he stands on his own and he didn't come up off his dad to get this part. Mm-mm. And I like Tommy Kirk as Biff. Of I like that. I mean, he did a good job with the with the role. Um, I like the fact that he gets his opportunity to shine when it's his idea to switch the car out. And Alonzo Hawk the whole time is just brushing Biff off as uh, I'm smarter than you. You're not me. You didn't go. You haven't been around the block like me. I know everything there is to know. And it's Biff that goes, just switch the cars. And, and he says it like it's like a nothing. And I love that he gets that moment as well. Even though it's to hurt our protagonist, I like that he gets his moment in the sun. Yeah, I like that he's a conflicted character that... You know, he's not kicking and screaming. He's not begging his dad to get him back into the game. He just kind of takes it on the chin. Uh, And he's trying to toe the line between making his dad proud, which he knows is, is not going to be on the straight and narrow path, and trying to stay on the straight and narrow Um, And I, I like that in the end, he does come full circle because he's really paying attention in Ned's class now. Mm -hmm. We have Mrs. Chatsworth played by Belle Montrose. That is Professor Brainard's housekeeper. She is so funny and so likable that I wish we would have seen more of her. Same. Not nearly enough screen time. Uh, and and I feel like, you know, this is one of those things that I love so much about doing our podcast is that it shines light on these lesser known characters. She deserves a spotlight. She's a, st- a scene stealer. She's got some great lines and the performance is incredible. I would love to see a movie with her and the Reverend. Yeah, I, I could just watch them as a sitcom. Exactly. The other thing, you know, you mentioned a benefit for you personally in doing the show is being able to discover characters like this. And I'll agree with you that that is a benefit, but I also love that it sort of forces us to look at the behind the scenes a little bit more because something that makes this movie so special is the fact that this was the first time the Sherman brothers wrote a song for a Disney film. They wrote the Medfield fight song. And without this, there's no writing for Mary Poppins. There's no I mean, the the amount of work that the Sherman brothers did for Walt Disney, it starts here. Yeah. And I think that is so important. And I think because their music is timeless, it's so relevant to point out that this was their first bit of work with him. Right. They don't even get credit for the overall music on this film. They're not the composers. They wrote this one song. Uh, And it's, you know, if you really listen to it, I think you can hear some trends of the Sherman brothers in there. Uh, You know, there's no made up words or anything like that. It's a school fight song. It works as a fight song, but it's definitely elevated more than your average. Um, And I like the placement. That was something that caught my attention right away is that they have this fight song over the opening credits. So this film in no way, shape or form needs to be a musical by any means. Looking at you, Flubber remake with your dance break sequence. So bad. 
Um, but they still managed to get this song in there and it just works really well. It sets the tone. Uh, it, it brings great energy to the college campus and it's what gave them their start. That's the most important thing. All right. Final thoughts. I'll, I'll go first here. I think that while certain scenes drag on in terms of the pacing, this movie is spectacular. I think it is a forgotten classic. I think it's one that everybody should watch. I think it's still funny. I think it's still timely. I think that there is something for the whole family here. I think it is still relevant. It's the first Disney film that ever got its own sequel. Like I said, and and we just discussed, it's the first film that the Sherman Brothers wrote for. It's just such a good movie. It's fun. The characters are great. I can't speak enough about how much I enjoyed this. And when compare, and we'll eventually do Flubber, but when compared to Flubber, how much better this movie is. Because Flubber, I remember, okay, so Flubber I only saw recently because when that movie came out, I think I was 11. And a friend of mine invited me to the movies to go see it. And for whatever reason, I couldn't go that night. So it was like I had to wait until it came out on VHS to see it. But, you know, between 11 and 13 years old, there's that kind of phase where something you thought was funny at 11 is less funny at 12 and not funny at 13. So by the time it rolled around where I had my hands on it, I just kind of looked at it and said, I'm not really interested in seeing this anymore. Flubber does not hold a candle at all to its predecessor. This by far is the better movie. Yeah, Flubber, it gives you a little bit more, like I was talking about at the top of the show, it gives you a little bit more of that befuddled professor. But beyond that, it doesn't do anything better than this film. I completely agree with everything that you said. Um, It's a really clever story uh, that is expanded with great writing and great characters. It's it's a brilliant concept and they executed everything else perfectly. Aside from a few scenes where, like we talked about, they drag a little bit. What impresses me most is that they built towards these scenes. The basketball scene, the dance, Hawk flying through the air, the flying car. These are obviously your scenes that are going to stand out more than anything else. But what I love is that they didn't rush the moments in between to get us there. They still developed everyone. They still told a very good story with great dialogue. And it wasn't just like they were hanging their hats on the special effects. So well done across the board. Uh, I I wish I had grown up with this the way that I did with Mary Poppins. This is just as fun to watch. If you're looking for something comparable and your family loves Mary Poppins, definitely check this one out. It's black and white, so that might be a hard sell for the kiddos, but it is just as fun. And we want to know what you have to say about the absent-minded professor. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. 
I am so thankful for her suggestion as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me on any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L, E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you're looking for some home decor, perhaps a Disney-inspired mug or a custom invitation, Kelly has you covered. And listeners of Monoreal Radio get a discount of 10% with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Go scope out Kelly and everything she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So, Oscar noms came out today. My favorite day. All right. So, we got Burrow nominated for Best Short. Deservedly so. That's a cute little short. It was really good. Uh, Mulan got nominated for Best Costume Design which was one of the few good things about Mulan. Agreed. It also got nominated for Best Visual Effects. Okay. Yeah, okay, I can see that one. The one and only Ivan also got nominated for Best Visual Effects. We haven't checked that one out yet, but I definitely want to. Brian Cranston. Yeah, it's on the list. Onward gets nominated for Best Animated Feature, but it's going up against Soul. Soul wins, right? I was going to say, everybody go home. Don't even bother. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even bother with it. Um, but it's it's going to be... I'm, I'm going to be excited to see. I, I really think Soul deserves all of its accolades. And I, I mean, I said that when we reviewed the uh, the film a couple of months ago. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. I mean, it was just so good. I think of all of the films that got nominations for Disney, that's the one that's going to clean up. I agree. And... You know, it it really kind of rubs me the wrong way when people are saying it only got nominated just because there was such a small pool of new films this year. It got nominated because it's a great film. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of great films, we also got another Cruella trailer that dropped today. Yeah. I am super excited about this one. I was excited when we got the first trailer and it looked really cool, but... I wasn't 100% on board because I felt like they picked the wrong song. They got it right this time. Exactly. Like, just the visuals alone. I never thought in a million years I would think The Clash when I, when I thought of Disney. And they did not use The Clash this time, but they did this awesome cover of uh, Nancy Sinatra. Yeah. And I feel like it is so more 
on brand with the aesthetic that they're going for for this film. Like, this is just a great trailer, and it makes me so excited. Yeah, and the more I'm seeing of Emma Stone, the more I am convinced that they did cast the right actress for this role. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Give us a follow on our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Of course, you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And for links to all of the social media as well as the show, you can go scope out monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.